Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri, a Beverly Hills-based psychologist, certified sex therapist, and the founder of Modern Intimacy. Thanks for joining me here where I talk about sex, relationships, mental health, and dive into your questions with practical answers and real solutions. Each week, I share insights aimed at helping you build an authentic and healthy relationship with yourself, with others, and with your sexuality. It's time to get naked emotionally, mentally, and on your own time, physically. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Get Naked with Dr. Kate podcast. I'm so, so excited this week for this conversation. Um, With me today is somebody who has influenced my career in a big way, although we've only just met in this conversation. Um, Today, we're meeting with Dan Savage, who is a sex advice columnist, a podcaster, an author of so many books, and Dan has appeared on many different TV shows, including Bill Maher, which is where I first was introduced to Dan and the Savage Love Advice Column, which is one of America's longest-running sex advice columns. And I just love Dan's really real, graphic, funny approach. And the work that he has done has really changed the conversation culturally about all kinds of things related to sex, monogamy, uh, queer rights, religion, and politics. So, Dan, thank you again for being here. I'm thrilled to speak with you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a little too Catholic to take a barrage of compliments like that all at once or gracefully. <laughs> so, I'm just going to like shake it off and hope we jump to a question real quick. <laughs> we can move through the discomfort. Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your backstory and kind of what did you want to be when you grew up? Was this it, or or how did you make <laughs> how did you make the pivot? Uh, I didn't know I wanted to be an advice columnist when I grew up, but I did grow up in an environment where I was being trained to be one without realizing it. Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with Ann Landers' column. Um, I was obsessed with Abigail Van Buren's column. And then when I hit puberty, my older brothers who were straight uh, had penthouse magazines and Playboy magazines. And I would sometimes read the Playboy advisor in Playboy back in the day. But I began to read Xavier Hollander's column, Ask the Madam, Um, she was a sex worker who wrote a book called The Happy Hooker that came out in the 70s. She began writing a sex advice column for Penthouse, and it was very graphic, but very matter-of-fact and very constructive. And uh, when I started writing Savage Love, I really modeled it on Ann Landers and Xavier Hollander, and I was so steeped in both of them that it just kind of came naturally to me. It wasn't what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to be in theater. I have a a degree in uh, theater. 
uh, with a minor in history. So I was one of those few people in the theater department who knew how to fence and knew when people fenced, as opposed to just knowing how to fence. Um, and I had a theater here in Seattle. I moved here after kicking around Europe for a few years and started a theater and it was very successful. But then my writing career took off and I was like, ah, there's the theater where I'm doing well, we're making some money, we're paying our actors. Or there's this writing career where I'm doing very well. And I reached a fork in the road and I had to stop doing theater, which kind of broke my heart. Um, but there's something theatrical about advice columns. It, it very much does feel like a stage sometimes. And I just just really love it and been doing it for 33 years. How has it shaped who you've become as a human and your own relationship with sexuality? I've learned a lot writing this column. Um, I think when you're straight, there can be, there are a lot of straight people out there who are really curious about sex and sexuality and relationships, but gay people are forced to be curious about those things because they really shape who we are and they're what make us you know, strange as often from our families, from uh, the faith traditions in which we might have been raised. And we have to ask ourselves, why us? Why me? What's going on here? And you have to run down answers for those questions to even be comfortable enough to come out as gay. Because when you come out as gay, and I am rare for gay men of my generation and then I came out as a teenager. Um, when you come out as gay, you're going to get a lot of questions that you're going to have to answer from family and friends. And you often have to answer those questions before you feel like you have situational expertise and you just get barraged with questions. You get interrogated. Um, and, and, and so what have I learned? I, I learned a lot. About, you know, I didn't know about asexuality, didn't know what that was or how that worked. I learned that male bisexuals actually exist. Uh, there's a myth in gay male communities that uh, male bisexuals are just gay men who are half out of the closet. Um, which stems from like a lot of gay people do come out as bi before coming out as lesbian or gay. That doesn't mean everybody who comes out as bi is one of those gay or lesbian people. Um, I can't remember the question now. What have I learned? I've learned so much. But what I brought to it was already this straight people would turn to me for sex advice when I was 16, 17 years old and I had come out to a few friends. There is this intuitive understanding among straight people that gay people know more about sex because we've had to think about it in a way that straight people can, but can avoid thinking about it. Yeah. I love the way you said that. It's so true, right? There's so much privilege in growing up in a heteronormative culture that does create huge gaps in motivation. Is it privilege though? Is it a privilege though to, to, to arrive at your adult sexuality without really having thought too much about it? You get, if you're gay, the privilege of, this is for me, this isn't for me, I accept this, I don't accept that. If you reject or you don't, don't reject, you're just not heterosexual, right. then you get to write your own script. Um, mm-hmm. And straight people can often take them decades of frustrating relationships, um, unsatisfying sex, before they begin to do what gay people were doing for themselves at 15, which is do what works for you and figure out what it is you wanted, who you are, and then bring those things into your life. Rather than just floating along into these default expectations around monogamy or marriage or kids or PIV sex or whatever it is that is expected of you. Because once you're gay, that was unexpected. That wasn't what was expected of you. And you get to accept or reject everything else. And that's, that's been wonderful for me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. I think it is one of the gifts of being immersed in this work, regardless of your sexual orientation, is that you get to learn so much and challenge so much about whatever it was you thought you knew, because so much of what most people are raised with is just like handed down, watered down scripts of how to be a human. And they're really confining. They are. And often, you know, I, I attempted to be monogamous when I first came out. I was going to be a good gay um, and not the kind of gay person that alarmed my parents or Ronald Reagan or Jared Falwell. Um, and it was, you know, five years into trying and failing at monogamy where I said, maybe it's not that I'm failing monogamy, but monogamy's failing me. And it just sort of turned it all on its head. Like, this isn't working to enhance or improve my relationships. This is actually the failed attempts are harming my relationships. And I had known gay couples then who were not monogamous, and they seemed like they had diffused a bomb that blows up a lot of other people's relationships. There's a great sex researcher, and I can't remember her name. I always have to look everything up, and I'm not going to make people wait while I look at it right now who said that every monogamous relationship is a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> and that was certainly true of my monogamous relationships because I, it, it's not that I couldn't do it, is that I needed to learn that I didn't have to do it and shouldn't try to do this thing that didn't make me happy, didn't make my partners happy. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. What are some of the most humbling experiences that, that you unearthed in your, I guess, in your path into what felt like a better fit? It's hard to be honest, and I have a lot of empathy for people who've made commitments, had children, and didn't have the courage to be honest about who they were with their partner because the stakes felt so high, because they're so feared, fearful of rejection. Um, it's a truism to the point of being a cliche among sex researchers, writers, counselors, therapists, that someone who couldn't tell their spouse what they really wanted in bed or who they really were erotically, what their erotic imagination is about, will tell a one-night stand, will tell mm -hmm. a sex worker, and will feel more comfortable and seen by a sex worker, someone they're never ever going to have to be in the same room with again because they don't care. They don't care whether that person rejects them. I ache for people who've backed themselves into situations where there are children family, a history together, marriage, and they now feel like they have to tell the truth or they're going to implode because the stakes are so high. And if we can just get it into people's heads, the time for telling the truth and being really who you are is at the start when the, the stakes are lower. And then if they don't want what you want, you don't want what they want. If they're too high a price of admission to pay to be in the relationship because needs are going to be unmet, emotional or sexual, then it's easier to extricate yourself from it. It, it means encouraging people to have a sort of a different relationship with the concept of rejection, mm -hmm. that it's this thing to be feared and avoided at all costs. When early in relationships, it's a thing, you got to find that balance where you're not leaning into it because you're not then like destroying relationships, but you're welcoming it because it's clarifying. If you get to a point where it's clear that there's no, compromise accommodation there's no like working through this and you get to that rejection point you're freed to go find somebody who's more compatible you're yeah. free to go find somebody who when you know you do the venn diagram of emotional uh sexual 
whether you want kids or not, religion or not, where you want to live, it's, it's a more of a circle and less of Mickey Mouse ears. And a lot of people, for fear of rejection, stay in Venn diagram relationships that look like Mickey Mouse ears. And you can do that for five years, 10 years, mm -hmm. long enough to scramble your DNA together and maybe make a kid, but you can't do that for 50 years. No, not without bumping up against some really deep, I think, identity conflicts and existential conflicts because it's so confining. And, and the binds that come up in having to decide like, whether or not to be true to oneself or whether or not to be true to this path that you've set yourself on in life, either consciously or unconsciously, it, it can create so much despair for folks later in life. And you know, to your point, a lot of people do find themselves on these paths because it's what they've been told they should do. Compulsory monogamy is one of the biggest things that we talk about um, in our practice all the time. Like, how did I get here? And is this what really life is this what life and relationships are supposed to be about? Clearly, there should be more. And sometimes that means the, more partners, but sometimes it means more expansiveness. I think more agency is yeah. what we need more of. That monogamy is opt-in. It's a choice yeah. you make as a couple. And if you actually know any non-monogamous couples or even polyamorous couples, what you'll find is that it, they were often monogamous for a while. Um, if it's a long-term open or polyamorous couple, there may have been periods where they went, they reverted to or readopted, just mm -hmm. to like make it not pejorative language, monogamy for a time. Mm -hmm. um, and that... If it's a choice you made rather than a default setting, rather than a script that was written for you or imposed on you, it can make monogamy more joyful. It can make mm -hmm. the struggle that is monogamy um, for many, because you're still going to want to have sex with other people. You're still going to be attracted to other people. That desire for variety, new experiences, danger, risk, affirmation mm -hmm. of your desirability or your sexual sort of potency or agency, that's not going to go away. And the challenge for people in monogamous relationships is how do you put that in harness to serve the relationship. I'm not one of those non-monogamous poly people who says that monogamous people are doing it wrong and they should all be open or poly. That's what monogamous people told people who were open. Oh, you're doing it wrong. That's not really love. And I'm not turning around and saying, you're doing it wrong. That's not really love. What I'm saying is do what you need to do for you as a couple that works for you. There are obvious advantages to monogamy around paternal security for men. Um, sexually transmitted infections and not acquiring them if it's a sexually monogamous relationship. For a lot of people, there's a tremendous emotional security in monogamy. And the trade-off is worth it for a lot of people. The like lack of variety, new experiences, that affirmation of your desirability from other people whose jobs it isn't to pretend you're still desirable. You know, your, your husband or your wife has committed to lying to you all your life about you're hot, you're hot, you're hot. <laughs> And they may be telling you the truth, and that's and but sometimes you need what your husband is telling you or your wife to be seconded by someone who's not your husband or wife, whose job it isn't to tell you that. And a lot of people get that from like after work drinks, or they just like go to a bar with friends and somebody sends a drink to them, and like and they don't cheat. And some people get on apps and like get a little bit of positive reinforcement, and then they don't cheat, they go to their partner feeling charged. Uh, and, and and yeah, and poly people and open people have the same challenge because those forces of ennui and um, stasis that can really create a crisis in the like souls of monogamous people, the the forces of chaos. There's a lot of like 
drama, chaos, a lot of like balls to juggle in an open or poly relationship. It requires a lot of communication and it opens you up to, you know, what can seem like scary experiences, um, but that are enlivening. My husband and I have been together 30 years. We each have a boyfriend. Um, we're at that stage of life where a lot of couples are just kind of sitting around waiting for, wondering who's going to die first and what that's going to mean for the other one. And we joke that even when we're having a conflict about his boyfriend, my boyfriend, like how we're going to work this, how we're going to work that, we're not bored. We're not bored. We have a lot to talk about. Um, and not a lot of couples have been together as long as uh, Terry and I have can say that. I mean, that is so true. And I think it's it's so critical to think about like what are the underlying psychological benefits that can come from any sort of chosen agreements in couples and i think it's really important to recognize that piece around boredom and some folks really do thrive with just a little bit more texture and chaos and space and tension in the relationship and that's what excites them and gets them going and this can be a formula i don't like to use that word but it can be a recipe to invite you know a, a sustainable amount of controlled chaos yes it's important i you know if you're in my business you get this question all the time i'm sure you get it too mm -hmm. how do we get the spark back yeah. we were very excited about having sex with each other at the beginning and now not so much and people will read that as some sign that the relationship is inherently flawed or there's something wrong with it uh and in reality, what people need to know is at the beginning of the relationship, you didn't have to work at making it exciting because you were the adventure they were on and they were the adventure you were on, that it was the, the excitement was sort of built into the two of you without you having to, to work at it because it was risky. You were getting undressed in front of a perfect stranger for the first time. They could be crazy. You could be a, a serial killer. And you took this risk and the adrenaline would pump and the stress hormones would pump. And it was very exciting. Ten years in, people were like, where did all that excitement go? And it's not that there's something wrong with the relationship. That excitement went away because you're not strangers to each other anymore. You're not getting to know each other. You're not taking a risk being together anymore. And so if you want to feel that excitement, you have to go on an adventure together, which I think is sometimes hard for particularly straight couples to wrap their heads around that you were the adventure. Now you're the, the, you're the bedrock, you're the baseline, you're the comfort food. How do you, you, but you want that sense of adventure, risk, danger, adrenaline and desire. You want that all to kick back in. Okay. You want to be monogamous. There are ways to like combat that boredom. It's just that you have to pivot away from each other. Like you're looking to your spouse for that sense of adventure. They're looking to you. No, you need to link arms and face outward and go have an adventure. That can mean get the hell out of your house. Don't have sex in your, the bed in the same place, same time that you've been having sex for eight or 10 or 20 years. Go to a sex club. Go to a, a, a nude beach at midnight. Go somewhere and do something that feels dangerous because that's what you had at the beginning of your relationship. She felt dangerous. You felt dangerous because you kind of were dangerous that inherent built-in danger of like this person, I don't really know this person. I'm getting to know this person with my dick, right? Or I'm getting to know this person with my genitals out with, you know, being completely vulnerable to this person as physically while I get to know them. How do you bring that back into the relationship? Have sex on the roof, have sex in your car, 
you know, this all presupposes that the person you're with wants to have sex with you and you want to have sex with them, which isn't always true in long-term relationships. Sometimes people marry for other reasons. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we need to talk about more is companionate relationships and companionate marriages being perfectly valid if it's what both people want. It will work. You can have a companionate, loving, intimate, mostly sexless relationship or entirely sexless relationship. If everybody's happy, I'm happy for you. But if you, one or the other, both of you want sex, Mrs. Sex, sex is powerful. You can't damn it up. That desire, it will out. It, it will, will tear everything down to fulfill itself. Yeah, it will. What, what's one of the most heartbreaking questions or examples that you've had someone write in about as it relates to that? I'm infamous and sometimes stereotyped as the guy will hand out permission slips to people who want to cheat. Mm. I think there are circumstances where cheating is the least worst option for all involved, including the person being cheated on. Mm. When you say that, people picture, you know, a couple in their 20s or 30s, a small kid at home, um, and the cheating being this, you know, betrayal uh, and Mm -hmm. disloyalty. What I hear from and what I often find myself kind of adjudicating, getting to be Solomon about, is coupled together 25, 30 years. One partner is physically or emotionally no longer capable of sex. The other partner is, you know, has waited 10 years, 15 years, has been cut off for 15 years, isn't an asshole, isn't you know, abusive, has done the work, like, let's go to counseling, let's go to couples counseling, tried and tried and tried. And the the desire for sex on the part of that partner has been a source of conflict in the relationship and disappointment and a burden to the partner who doesn't want to have sex because they feel like they're failing and they feel like, and these people write to me and I'm like, do all I say is do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. Sometimes the partner who isn't interested in sex anymore is physically, you know, is, is chronically ill. Mm. And the right thing to do, what I'm told is the right thing to do is say to the partner who's become a caretaker over the 20, 30 year life of that relationship, the right thing for you to do is divorce. The right thing for you to do before you have sex with anybody else is to abandon your chronically ill partner and go date someone else once you're single. The wrong thing to do is to discreetly and considerately get your needs met for some sort of sexual release or outlet in such a way that doesn't terrorize your partner who's so dependent on you and so vulnerable by making them feel like you're going to leave and doesn't humiliate them. You're not having sex with the neighbors. You're not having sex with a sibling of theirs. You are very considerate about when and where and how because you do still love this person and you don't want to cause this person more hurt than circumstances have already caused them. I think that's the more loving thing to do. I think cheating under those circumstances is absolutely the right thing to do. You can show your loyalty to someone with something other than your genitals. I really appreciate the way you're framing that. It, it, it really does help to think about fidelity and loyalty in a dimensional way because it is a really hard question for folks to wrap their minds around. How do I commit to somebody and show them that I love them and I'm devoted to them and to our relationship and to the family we've created if there are kids? While also, again, we said this at the start of the conversation, without sacrificing this part of myself that feels so undermet or underdeveloped or extinguished, and that can feel so deadening. And if you're 
holding on to this deadening piece? What are you actually mm-hmm. bringing to this relationship that you're so devoted to? And I think that's a hard question for a lot of people to answer. And hearing from people the way I do, I hear from them anonymously. People send me emails and call that often the person who then gives himself permission to get sex outside the relationship, if there's no more sex inside the relationship, will, even if they don't act on it right away, that they've given themselves permission if the right opportunity comes along to seek release, that they're less resentful, that this thing that was a source of conflict and tension in the relationship, uh, that made the relationship less joyful than it could have been, that stone in the shoe is removed. And even if they never act on it, just like to live in hope that it might happen under the right circumstances can be a relief. And, you know, but one of the things people need to get through their heads about monogamy need to let go of what we've been told, which is it's the, literally the only thing that humans do where perfect execution, flawless execution, perfect scores for five decades is the only metric for success. What we need to get into people's heads is you can be with somebody for 50 years. They cheated on you once or twice. They were good at monogamy. They weren't perfect at it, but nobody's perfect at fucking anything. But we (laughs) tell people that if someone isn't perfect at monogamy and you find out 50 years, you know, you find out after they're dead that 20 years into the relationship and 20 years before they died, they had a brief affair that made them feel alive. And what you're supposed to think at that moment is he never loved me. It was all a lie. That is what rather a lot of people than, think. Absolutely. Yeah. Rather than telling yourself he was human or she was human, and 40 years, uh, except for that weekend, a flawlessly executed monogamous behavior, pretty great. Pretty great at monogamy, that person was. And they must have really loved me because mm-hmm. they stayed. You know, we have no-fault divorce now. People are free to go. And sometimes people stay because they love you, despite other opportunities, other partners they could have been with. And people will not take that yes for an answer. I've heard from people who found evidence of an affair a decade after a, pow- a spouse's death and or were told about it by some fucking asshole because you needed to know you should know this. Why? 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 I get that all the time. Kids find out one of their parents had an affair and they think they need to tell the other parent it's like no you don't you don't need to tell your other parent that why shatter your mom's idea or your dad's idea about what this relationship was and what it meant why take that from them like shut the fuck up (laughs) and this is all i want to really quickly clarify i am not smiling on serial adulterers i am not saying you know if somebody's your husband slept with your sister on your wedding night, that is not something you can forgive or get past or should be expected to. Years into a relationship when sex was less important, when the commitment was so solid that monogamy as a sort of performance of commitment was less critical, your partner had a neurotic experience with somebody else, your partner met somebody on a business trip and rolled around a little bit, that you should be able to forgive and be forgiven for. I hear you. I think there's just so much nuance that that comes with that conversation, especially when we think about things like entitlements and obligation and privilege and what it means for somebody to not have consent to that kind of a dynamic. And it's 
I agree that people shouldn't be forever condemned as humans if they step out and have one of these, you know, kind of solitary experiences. And, and there can be a lot of room for growth in those relationships. And it can bring people closer together when they actually can come back and say, here's why I did it. Here's what I got from it. I'm sorry I hurt you. And I'm committed to you. But that's not always how it happens, right? It's, it's no, like... It, it isn't. Yeah. I, I, you know, I often have told people who are in sexless relationships that they, there's a little speech they should go give, which is, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to this relationship. Obviously, our relationship isn't defined by sex because if it was defined by sex, it would be over. And it's clearly not. We still love each other. Here we are every day taking care of mm -hmm. each other. This deep intimacy and history and connection. But I got to say, like, I'm not made of stone. If something happens, I'm not going anywhere. And if you do something, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And just like a little throat clearing about I'm not going anywhere, you're not going anywhere, sex doesn't define our relationship anymore, and the profoundness of our love and commitment to each other, and whatever happens, yeah. get a D. It's called I call it a DADT, don't ask, don't tell. Hmm. The, the trick about tells is that it's not just words that tell. It's actions yeah. and behaviors and evidence that you might leave lying around. And if you're going to be considerate of someone, you know, I'll sometimes hear from people, like, why did he hide that from me? Or why did yeah. she hide that from me? And it's like, because, because they loved you. Yeah. Because they didn't want, they had a need you couldn't or wouldn't meet anymore. And they did what they needed to do to take to stay in this relationship with you. Yeah. Yeah. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Keeping your sex toys clean is easy with Kimono Swirl Natural Cleaning Gel. With Kimono Swirl Natural Cleaning Gel, you can feel good about cleaning the toys and places that make you feel good. Formulated with natural and botanical ingredients like Camellia White Tea Extract and Arnica Montana Flower Extract, Swirl Natural Cleaning Gel gently and safely washes your body, your intimate accessories and toys, your menstrual cups, and so much more. Harness the power of nature for an effortless clean with Kimono Swirl Natural Cleaning Gel. Use promo code 20NAKEDSWIRL on Amazon for 20% off through the month of November. Kimono Swirl's Natural Cleaning Gel is superior, it's body safe, and it's a naturally pure way to clean yourself, your partner, and all of your intimate accessories. These gentle ingredients clean easily and effectively. Kimono Swirl Natural Cleaning Gel keeps things easy and compact. Use promo code 20NAKEDSWIRL on Amazon for 20% off through the month of November. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Educated is a library of resources with all different kinds of experts to help people have access to sex education and pleasure education through their myriad resources and videos. So if you're interested in sourcing some new material and really getting educated or beducated, you can go to beducated.com and get 40% off the yearly pass with my coupon code, Dr. Kate. You can try all Beducated courses for one day free and you won't get charged for the first 24 hours. You can cancel at any time. It's no risk with a 14 day money back guarantee. Invest in your love life and join Beducated now for just $10 a month. You'll get access to a vast variety of over 100 online courses from world's top experts. Beducated offers quick and easy learning even if you're on the go. They have high quality and reliable information that's explicit but not pornographic, so you really get a sense of what you're doing. Check it out and use code Dr. Kate for 40% off. You've been so um, front and center in the conversation about the intersection of sex, politics, religion, and I'm really curious about kind of what your take is on what's going on in our country right now. No good things are going on in our country right now. It's terrifying. (laughs) Um, There's a gay uh, diarist. uh, I'm so terrible with names. I did it earlier. His name I can't remember. Who wrote uh, in the 70s that um, social tolerance is like a tide. It can Mm -hmm. reach a high water mark and then recede out of sight. And he was talking about... um, Germany in the 20s and 30s as it careened from the Weimar Republic when people were pretty free to express themselves um, into the rise of fascism and the Nazi takeover in the early 30s. And it felt like, oh yeah, I read that in the 70s. I read that at some time in the 70s and I was like, oh yeah, that was a dark time in Germany. I'm glad I'm alive now in America. And yet it feels like we're going through that, oh, we're watching the tide recede right now um we have a really michelle goldberg there's a name i remember has a terrific column in the new york times today about our anti-majoritarian political structure that there's an advantage to the political minority in the senate um skews towards rural areas tiny red states have two senators enormous california has just two senators the electoral college favors conservatives um republicans have only won uh the popular vote once in the last eight presidential elections, but they took the White House three times. Um, And the Supreme Court is majority appointed by Republican presidents who did not Mm -hmm. win uh, the 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 vote, who did not who got fewer votes than the person who took the uh, than the Democrat. And that's that's a cause for real despair, because minority points of view in this country are tremendously politically powerful and it's not how it's supposed to work. It's, you know, why we don't have gun control. It's why Roe got repealed. Um, and it's endangering queer people, people of color, other minorities, the rights of women who are actually the majority. You know, we talk about women as if they're a minority when they're a majority. And it's, it's scary. Um, you know, 
the right now knows they can't win national elections very easily. And their pivot wasn't to become, to figure out how to make themselves more appealing to a majority of the electorate, but was to do what they can to end elections yeah. or rig them. And it's, it's scary. You know, we're literally like that writer who's writing about twenties, thirties, Germany that started with book bans and book burnings. And right. we have gone, we were having an orgy of book bans and book burnings. The book burnings in Nazi Germany in the twenties targeted books about queer people and by queer people. Um, the book bans right now are targeting to a great extent books about queer people mm-hmm. uh, and trans people. And, and it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. We, we're living in a terrifying moment. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll see if our civic institutions and the judiciary is strong enough for this fever to break. But I've been waiting for the fever to break basically since Reagan. <laughs> um, you've been wa- we've been watching since Nixon. Um, the right crank up this mob that now the establishment Republicans, like the Bush family, like mm-hmm. um, Mitch McConnell, who's getting booed and shouted down at events in Kentucky, they assembled this mob, which is, has now come for them. They created the golem that is the Republican base. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first people that golem, that, that monster, Frankenstein's monster came for were Republicans, rhinos, mm-hmm. that they, they called them. And now it's coming for the rest of us. And it's, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's it's uh, on any given day, I feel sort of hopeful. And then other days, it feels so ominous and overwhelming. And what I'm hearing a lot in practice is folks are really struggling to stay connected to their sexuality in a way that feels safe and enlivened. And a lot of folks are questioning kind of how do I how do I be me? How do I include and incorporate my sexuality into who I am with all of this fear that's going on in and it's hard. I wonder what you say to that. I came out in 1980, and the AIDS crisis kicked off a couple years later. Mm-hmm. And those were dark and terrifying times for gay men. Um, and we fought back. Um, we created queer gay community organizations to take care of ourselves, to spread the message about safe sex. And we created ACT UP to fight back politically. Um, and they were... You know, you had mainstream conservative writers suggesting that gay people be tattooed on the the buttocks uh, and quarantined, um, and wow. it felt like all the gains of the '70s of the the nascent early gay liberation movement were going to be wiped out. And we would have giant demonstrations. Uh, we would get. I got arrested at the U.S. Capitol, carried out of the U.S. Capitol because we went into the U.S. Capitol to shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> a little like, much not January 6th. We didn't try to stop democracy, uh, the democratic process. We were trying to get the notice of our democratic elected representatives to do something. It's a very mm-hmm. different posture, right? But we would have these giant parties. We'd have die-ins. We would literally, I'm going to cry. We would literally, we marched past the White House and threw ashes over the White House fence mm-hmm. of people, of guys who had died who wanted their ashes dumped out at the White House. And then we would go to a party. Then we would have a celebration. Then we would make out on the dance floor. And that would confound our enemies. They would see us fighting them and organizing politically. 
and they would not see us curled up in the fetal position on the floor afterwards. Mm. They would not see us devastated, although we were devastated. It was a devastating time. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I had boyfriends and friends dying all around me. It was horrifying. Yeah. And yet, art, poetry, music, theater, porn, sex, desire, dancing was another form of resistance because mm-hmm. it showed to us that we were still alive and it showed to them that we were going to go on living. And, you know, one of the things you can give the Republican Party and the right is your despair. One of the things you can give them is um, your, you know, to, to, to let them get into your head and deprive you from living as who you are, which is what they want to do. They want to force everyone to live as who they think we should be. And they themselves are often not. We are, how many times do we have to watch a right-wing Republican get outed as <laughs> gay or having fucked a rent boy or um, having a mistress whose abortion they paid for? They don't want to live by the terms they want to impose on the rest of us either. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Joyfully having a one-night stand or a three-way or connecting with somebody on an app and getting together and feeling that life and joy and pleasure and, and projecting that out into the world is another form of political resistance to the right. Mm -hmm. And so if we were able to do that in 1988, 1989, and 1990, at the 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, at the height of the dying, people are like, oh yeah, it was really bad in the 80s. And it's like, no, 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 it was getting worse and worse until 96 when the drugs that were finally an effective treatment mm-hmm. came out, which only happened because of ACT UP, because of us dumping ashes of our dead friends at the White House. Um, if we could do that then, everybody can do that now. Yeah, yeah. So pleasure, live big in the pleasure and, and build community in the pleasure is really where there's a lot of strength because, you know, recently I, um, I did a- But earn it, down. but earn, earn that pleasure. Of you know course. what? We did the work. We were in the streets. We were at the demo. We were politically engaged. And then there was, there was something about the, the pleasure wasn't like denial. It wasn't an escape. Right. The pleasure was an, a reward and an extension yeah. of the activism. So figure out a way to make your pleasure feel like self-care in the wake of doing the work as opposed to I'm just going to run off and suck a million dicks and bury my head in the sand, but the sand is a dicks. Like that's not, you won't feel good about the pleasure you have then because it'll be, it'll be something it's a, it's a narcotic. You're doping yourself with it. But if the pleasure is release after the work, it's empowering. Yeah. I've been training as a psychedelic assisted therapist over this past year. And one of the things that we talk a lot about in the training is how we don't have enough rituals to celebrate in groups. Right. And so what I'm hearing in what you're saying is like there's a fighting that you're doing together that joins you. There's grieving that joins you. There are all of these practices around play and expression and sexuality and pleasure that do join and cement the fight and and the community and really strengthen the community. And I think that is really saving for a lot of folks when they do find those pockets of despair that are hard to avoid sometimes. Yeah, the news is hard to avoid. We're all doom scrolling all the time. <laughs> um, you know, the doom scrolling that I did in, at the height of the AIDS epidemic was leaving the house because everywhere you went, there were men walking around in gay neighborhoods 
covered in carsomies, KS lesions with stents in their chests who were on the verge of death. And like the doom was everywhere you looked. Uh, now the we now we like open our phones every morning and we subject ourselves to the doom all the time, doom scrolling uh, on Twitter. But yeah, we got to find community and we got to find connection. I just did an intro to my show where I praised Burning Man in the wake. Of, you know, a lot of people were feeling kind of Schadenfreude about right. Burning Man in the rain. I, I would never go to Burning Man. I know that I wouldn't enjoy it. But I'm really happy for all of my friends who find meaning and community and connection mm -hmm. and purpose. My friends who are burners who work all year on their costumes and their group tent things and the art displays that are, exist just to bring joy. And it gives them community. And I look at that and I don't think, oh, that's stupid because Burning Man's stupid and I would never go. I look at that and think, that's amazing. And I'm so glad you have that. And then how do I find that? Where do I find that? And where do people who Burning Man doesn't speak to find it? Now, some people find it at church where their worst impulses are marshaled. But one of the things the left needs to do better is create those structures where people connect, find meaning, find importance, um, important connections, not like self-importance, and, and come together around a shared purpose. And so if it's not Burning Man for you, what is it? There are, you know, a lot of people look at certain sex communities. There was just a giant leather fetish uh, BDSM kink party in Berlin called Folsom. And people like see the pictures and there's like a lot of guys out in jock straps and a lot of guys in like crazy fetish gear and guys who are like tied up in the streets and people are like, this is what, what this is like, what is this? And this is disgusting and da, 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 da. And they don't see that these people gathering every year at Folsom Berlin are friends mm -hmm. and that they feel this sense of connection around their kinks and fetishes that creates community for them. Yeah. What creates community for you? What brings you the kind of joy you see if you can look past the like crazy fetish attire, the joy you see on the faces of those men at that event? What does that for you? Yeah. Hopefully it's not oppressing other people. Hopefully it's not banning books in libraries. Um, hopefully it's something that is positive. Burning Man is positive. And I think Burning Man is very like Folsom in what it does mm -hmm. for people. Well, this, this reminds me of one of your uh, one of your sayings that you've created: the karmic rule of kink, right? K R L K. <laughs> and let's break that down as a way to kind of tie it all together, because I love the way that you that you hone in on something that I think is uh, a false protection for people. Yeah, people want someone who's normal, and whatever that means. You know what we know of human sexuality? Deviance is the norm. Mm -hmm. um, there was a study out of the UK to measure the prevalence of paraphilia as a paraphilia is a kink, a non-normative desire. And what they found was the, the overwhelming majority of everybody had at least one, which means kinks are not non-normative, they're normative. Exactly. So the, like the weirder, the more sort of you something is sexually, the more normal you are, however out there it might feel, or however hard it might make your search for a partner. If you have a really out there unique kink, you know, finding people who share your sexual interest is going to take time. Where Kavrick Rule of Kink came from was getting a letter from a woman who dumped a guy because he told her he had a foot fetish. And this was like some months into the relationship. And 
maybe he should have disclosed sooner, but he was afraid of being rejected for it as he was. And he had, she literally wrote, like, I'm a wait, I'm putting myself at college waiting tables. I would come home and he would massage my feet for an hour after a 10 hour shift. And it was great. And then I found out he was a foot fetishist and it was not great because he was getting something out of it too. Then it was terrible. And I think there are kinks where people can be good giving and game and go there where you can do that for a partner. And I told this woman, like the karmic rule of kink, you dump the honest foot fetishist and you're going to wind up married to the dishonest necrophiliac. You're going to wind up married to somebody who didn't disclose their kink. And it's a lot more problematic. You know, people, this is a difficult thing to say to women in particular, because women are told, socialized, to meet men's needs, to, to, to set their own aside, to be nurturing and giving and selfless in all areas of life, but also sex. So a lot of women wind up having sex that doesn't feel good for them mm-hmm. and leaves them feeling dehumanized or used. I'm not pro not feeling good, dehumanized, used. But part of the misinterpretation of that message is never do anything that you don't want to do. Well, there may be some things your partner wants to do that you can do that don't leave you feeling dehumanized. They're just not your thing, but you can be giving and indulgent and like letting the kinky foot fetishist who loves you groove on your feet for a while every day or maybe a little during sex. How can you not do that? Like, why would you not do that? I love you so much. I would die for you. I would take a bullet for you. Get away from my feet. Who says that? (laughs) And anybody who says that is going to marry the dishonest necrophiliac. Totally. I mean, I think it comes down to fear because there's so much shame around sexuality for a lot of people still. And they make up a lot of meaning about what attraction to different kinds of ideas or body parts means. And sometimes that meaning is just so... It's just such a it, it's such an erroneous construct, but it's carried so much weight in in mm-hmm. the lives of their psyches. And so, when we're able to kind of disentangle and step back a little bit and be like, it's just a foot, right? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. It's not gross. I mean, it might be smelly from being in your shoe, but maybe that's what turns <laughs> somebody on. And like, can that be okay? Yeah. Again, they maybe take a shower. Like, what? There's there's just so many different ways I think to get out of our own way and to start separating what is a legitimate fear, right? Like, will this hurt me? Or is it going to hurt the idea of who I think I am if I enjoy something? And and that's a really, I think, important uh, differentiation for people to get curious about. And it's subjective. I can't just give a list of like, these are obvious no-goes, no one should ever do this. One person's a fetish, I call it a fetish too far. One person's a fetish too far is another person's like, I can't wait to do that again, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you discover, you know, some people like that gay fetish event, Folsom, I mentioned. I always say there are two kinds of guys you meet there. You meet the guys who were tying themselves up when they were 12 and you meet the guys who fell in love with those guys. And then kind of not like fetishes are contagious, but kind of like this thing began to speak to them. Like there was some sort of chords in their sexuality, sexual expression that resonated with the kink that they were introduced to by someone that they fall in love with. That can happen if you're open to it. You may encounter someone who's got a sexual interest that isn't something that you've thought about, thought about doing, but that doesn't disgust you. And you have to be really clear about what disgusts you because it's disgusting to you and what disgusts you because you were told this is gross or weird, but is it? And you have to think about it. 
I always tell kinky people or people who are about to disclose their sexuality, whatever it is, to not treat it like, you know, you're, I have cancer. It's not leukemia you're talking about. It's, you know, it's a gift, potentially. You're sharing something exciting, right? And I tell the people who may be on the receiving end of those disclosures, you've been socialized to say, ew, no, right? Yeah. And what you, all you have to do is say, oh, just drop the end. Just be like, oh, you don't have to. That's not yes. That's not, we can do it right this minute. That, what that oh says is, I'm going to think about it. But if you just go, ew, no, the person who disclosed that, the reason that foot fetishist guy dating the college student waitress didn't disclose right away is because when he had disclosed earlier in relationships, he got rejected immediately. So he was doing the thing some people do, which is like, they wait. So you get to know me a little bit. You know I'm not a freak. You know I'm a good person. And then there's this. Right. Mm -hmm. People fall in love and then or there's attraction. And then after that, you have to determine and sometimes, um, you know, uh, retroactively engineer sexual compatibility. Mm -hmm. People expect sexual compatibility to be spontaneous and a natural outgrowth of an emotional connection or sexual attraction. And it's not. It's a negotiation. Right. Right. Well, Dan, thank you. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Um, again, I'm really thrilled to be speaking with you today. What What are you working on now? Where can people find you if they want to get more engaged with your work? Uh, I have a website where you can find all of me. It's uh, savage.love. And there you'll find Savage Love, which is my c column that's been running for 33 years. Uh, every week I also do a column called Struggle Session, where I respond to uh, critiques and uh, jokes and comments about the column and the podcast, uh, the Savage Love Cast, which I've been doing every week for 17 years. Um, and if you become a, there's there's a free Savage Love, which is about three quarters of the column, and a free Savage Love Cast, which is about three quarters of the show. And if you like it and want more, you can subscribe. Um, and it's just 40 bucks, which is 10 bucks cheaper than a Substack subscription. Um, and you get all of Savage Love, all of the Savage Love cast. You get Struggle Session. I do Sex and Politics, which is an extended conversation with people about politics and sex. Um, and we have like live shows, live events that people who are my subs uh, get to come to exclusively. It's a good time. There's a really good community at Savage.love. Amazing. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thank we'll you for having me. Week. Thank you for listening to Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions, and I want to answer as many as I can. So feel free to email your questions to question at getnakedpodcast.com. If you're looking for a free 30-minute consultation with me or someone on my team, visit modernintimacy.com. And don't forget to join our newsletter, Modern Intimacy, on Substack. Let's meet back here next week. A new episode drops every Tuesday. Disclaimer, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and does not constitute a professional relationship with Dr. Kate Balistrieri or Modern Intimacy. This podcast is strictly for education and entertainment purposes only. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.